The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Turn to the book of Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Third chapter, I read you verse 7 through 13. This is the holy and inerrant, inspired, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, on the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. All God's people said, Amen. may we see Father God, we, today as always, we ask you to come and do what only you can do. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe what you have revealed here. To come by the working of your spirit, enlightening the eyes of our heart, allow us to see you and to rejoice. We ask this, Father, for your glory, for our good, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a particular question that I, I get asked from time to time, and I have to tell you that one of my very favorite things about being a pastor is being asked questions about the Bible. I think sometimes people are a bit bashful and maybe think, oh, I, I don't want to bother you. And I tell them, and I think they think this is what pastors have to say, no, this is my favorite part of the week. Handling God's word and preaching God's word and then fielding questions, even if those questions are, are you sure you're right on this? I love God's word. I love talking about God's word. I love thinking about God's word. I love the recognition that through a weak and, and, and frail and finite man like me, God might illuminate some folks and help them to see his word more clearly. And so I, I love it. There's one particular question that I get asked from time to time by children. As a matter of fact, this question was asked twice, just in the last week or so. And the question goes something like this. Why would God create the world the way that he has, knowing that man would sin? Why in the world would God create this universe, not just with the possibility that man might sin, but knowing full well that man will sin? I want to encourage you that if you find your little children asking those questions, rejoice. What this tells me is, is that these little six-year-old, eight-year-old minds and hearts are feeling the tension that actually exists in Scripture. They see in Scripture a God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The, the God of the universe who does not passively watch as anything happens. Who's not caught off guard and who's not learning in real time. At the same time, they see the infinitely holy God of the universe who hates sin. At the same time, they see the heart of their loving father who does not rejoice 
in the destruction of the wicked. And in the middle of all these truths, there's incredible tension in their little eight-year-old minds. They feel that tension. And there's something in them that wants to defend God. Theodicy is the word for that. My God is righteous. My God is just. And so there's got to be an answer here somewhere. But I want to caution you moms and dads in a couple of areas. Number one, don't try to find easy and glib answers to remove that tension. I know what happens is you get afraid. But what if he, what if he begins to think God evil? What if he starts to distrust God? What if he starts to believe that maybe God isn't righteous? And so I want to give him an easy answer. Beloved, there's not an easy answer. This is the kind of thing that men wrestle with the whole of their life. The better thing to do is to take them to those passages that reveal, that continue to affirm that all of these things are real. That all of these things are true. You take them to the passages that talk about the infinite holiness of God. Not even a shadow or a shape of, of shifting or darkness or, or evil. Not even tempting men to sin. You take, them, you, you take them to those passages that make clear, yes, God is good, infinitely good and holy and just and righteous. And then you take them to all those passages that make clear that this same God is sovereign and in control and never, never caught off guard. And then you wrestle. I didn't get to have a little boy, not yet at least. She's out of town, but we're going to pray for that. <laughs> but fathers, is there anything better than wrestling with your little boy? I wrestled with my girls too, some, right? As much as they would, they would laugh. But is there anything better than just a good DDT to a little boy? <laughs> wrestling is fun. We come and we wrestle with the scriptures, with these boys, with these girls, with our own hearts. Jacob walked with a limp all the days of his life because he wrestled with God. So you take your children to the scriptures and we show them those things that are true. And we say, son, daughter, you must learn to live in this tension and rejoice. Don't find yourself frustrated that you can't master the mind of God. Be thankful that there's a God whose mind is not simple like yours. And you realize that what your job is in that moment is to bring them by the work of the spirit, the power of the word to bring them to faith. There's Anselm of Canterbury that said, credo, ut, and telegum. I believe in order to understand. When a man comes to the scripture with a heart of faith, he'll understand all that God desires for him to understand. That's what we've been studying here in Ephesians, isn't it? When you read this, you can understand. The Apostle Paul has been called and set apart by God to this particular ministry. To preach the gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ. To bring illumination, knowing all the while that unless God gives the light to the heart, nothing's really going to happen. But knowing that for the mind that comes to the scripture with a heart of unbelief, there will never be any real understanding. And so... Absolutely, the way to the heart is through the mind, and so we do theology. We teach our children hard doctrines. We teach them that there's more to this scripture than the unbelieving world can ever understand. But at the same time, we pray recognizing that unless the Holy Spirit comes and brings them hearts of faith, they're never really going to understand anyway. So instead, we show them this glorious God, this incredibly complex Yet at the same time, simple God. And we pray that they would believe. They would turn and repent and trust in him. 
So the reason that I say all that this morning by way of introduction is because you're not going to find a Bible verse in Scripture that says this is why God's allowed sin. There's some that get really, really close in my estimation. But you're not going to find one that satisfies the unbelieving mind. We want a Bible verse that in, in plain form says God allowed sin for this purpose. But what you will find is a mass of texts that give us a lot of really good hints that can really inform our, our understanding, that can really settle our hearts and minds. They can really drive us to understand why the existence of sin isn't some hurdle to God's hurdle to God's glory. It's actually a way in which we see it more clearly. And this morning's text is one of those. Now, that's not the main thrust of this morning's text. The main teaching of the passage we're going to look at this morning is God's infinite wisdom, his manifold wisdom. That's the main teaching here. But this is one of those passages, I believe, where we can see just a glimmer of maybe this is why. Again, you're never going to master it. You're never going to come to an answer that's going to satisfy the unbelieving mind. But for the saints, for those who come to the scripture with faith, this will be just one more gift from God. One more picture, one more assurance, one more glimpse into what he was doing when he allowed this world to come as it is. So we're going to look this morning at verses 8 through 10, really focusing on the last half of 9 and 10. We read there, to me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So we talked last week again about the illuminating work of the Apostle Paul, how God works through earthen vessels. And yet at all times we're dependent upon him, his power and the work of his spirit. If there's going to be any real illumination... And we know that what the content of that is, that the content of this particular teaching that Paul refers us to here is this mystery. We know that the mystery is the full inclusion of the Gentiles, that all the promises of God come even to us, those who are outside the Jewish nation, that all of those promises, they come to us through Christ Jesus. But I want you to notice what he says here. He does not merely say that he has come to illuminate. He has come to bring light to everyone. What is the mystery of God? What does he say? He says that he is making clear what is the plan. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God? Now, we've already explored this word to some degree, this word plan. It's okonomia in Greek. It's the same word that he used up there in verse 2, Ephesians 3, verse 2. You have heard of the stewardship, same word. You have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. That's the role or the, the task or the responsibility that God had given to Paul. As, as a manager of this mystery, he had been given a, a stewardship of God's grace. That's that word. But we see it here translated as plan. Not so much the office, but the activity. The purpose, the plan, if you have an NIV or a King James translation, it says the administration, the activity of the administration. And so what I think the Apostle Paul is making clear to us here is that, that God had a plan. He didn't just have a, a distant goal somewhere. You know, it would really be swell if the Gentiles were able to come in. If the Gentiles could come in and have full inclusion with the Jewish people in my kingdom. God didn't just put a target out there somewhere on the wall, but he had a plan, a specific administration of that plan and how he was going to bring this thing to pass. Again, that God is in no way a passive observer. That he is working, that he is managing, that he is stewarding, that he is shaping, that he's carrying out this administration to that end. Now he says that this thing has only been revealed in, in shadows and signs. That's what we read just before this in chapter 3, that this was something that was not made known to the sons of men in previous generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. That this wasn't revealed in all its fullness in the Old Testament. You go back to the Garden of Eden, go to Genesis 3.15, immediately following the fall of man. And what do we read there? We read a promise from God. 
he would send forth a seed, the offspring of woman, that she would bruise the serpent's head and that he would bruise his heel. There's a promise there of what God would do. And then everything that we see from the garden through John the Baptist is God in, in shadows and in pictures. He, he's making promises and he's issuing prophecies about how he's going to do this thing, how he's going to rescue his people from the evil one, how he's going to destroy the works of the evil one. And we see all throughout the Old Testament how he was doing this through this nation that was meant to be a light unto all the other nations, specifically through Israel. And so through these shadows and these patterns and these pictures, in response to the promises and to the prophecies, those Old Testament saints that had eyes to see and ears to hear, they heard the gospel preached beforehand and they believed. They recognized that what God had said he would do and crushing the head of the serpent, they realized this thing will come to pass, and yet they couldn't fully see, but how? All they knew was Israel and the sacrifices and the priests and the tabernacle. They knew the law and they knew the circumcision. They, they had all these, all these pictures, again, glorious pictures. It's a, a blessing to have lived as a people under this light while the rest of the world groped around in darkness. But still, there had to have been points at which the faithful Old Testament saints wanted to look at heaven and say, what's the plan? Is there a plan? God, I believe your promises, but would you help my unbelief? Would you show me something about what you're doing? Because we're surrounded by foreign nations. Our own sin continues to get in the way. Our hearts rebel against you. Even our leaders follow after false gods. Gods, what's your plan? 1 Peter 1 verse 10 says it like this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So you can imagine the prophet Isaiah writing about the suffering servant. The one who would be rejected and despised and bruised and, and hated. The one whom it would please the father to crush. And at the same time they see this incredible exaltation of the Christ. The son of man. The one who is seated at God's right hand. How do those two things work together? The humiliation and the suffering and the pain and the ultimate exaltation. How do these things work together? And so they searched and they studied and they prayed and they looked. But it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. God revealed to them, listen, friend, you're looking forward. They were looking forward to us, those who come on the backside of the cross, who now through the sending of the Holy Spirit have much greater illumination, have greater insight into how the suffering servant is the exalted Christ, how the exaltation comes through the cross. They were looking forward to this. And then he appeared. Christ Jesus appeared and we see those Old Testament saints. I think, I'm pretty confident that tonight we're going to look at that prophetess, the old woman named Anna. You think about her and Simeon there in the temple and what were they doing? They were longing and they were waiting and they were watching. They were looking forward to see how is God going to bring this redemption? How is God going to accomplish this? What is the next step in God's plan? And then he came and they finally saw the Holy Spirit making it clear to them. But what the Apostle Paul is telling us here is that 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 happened, what, what happened with the coming of Christ, what happened in the incarnation, that wasn't a plan that God made up on the spot. This plan didn't formulate with the birth of Christ. This plan didn't even formulate back in the garden with the fall of man, but in eternity past. You see there in verse 11 of our text, Ephesians 3.11, it says that this was according to God's eternal purpose. Age upon age, hidden for ages in God. 
And as you go back and you read passages like the high priestly prayer of John 17, you read that first chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one. And before long, you begin to recognize that before the foundation of the world, the God of the universe had a plan. The triune God had come with a plan. The plan was that the father, the father's purpose in the redemption of his people, the son would go and he would accomplish that purpose in giving his life for this very same people. That the Holy Spirit would be, then be sent from the Father and from the Son to apply everything that the Son had accomplished in the redemption of that same people. It's often called the covenant of redemption in theological circles. This thing in eternity past that happened, this agreement amongst the Godhead, that the Father promised to the Son a people, a bride, that the Son joyfully said, and I will go. No one will take my life from me. I will lay it down of my own accord. I will willingly and joyfully go to secure this people for myself. I think we see hints of this in Revelation 13, 8, where we read about these saints whose names have been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. That in the mind of God in eternity past, the Lamb was already slain. Before the foundation of the world, the Lamb was already slain. And in his book, there were written particular and peculiar names. Those for whom the lamb would be slain. And I, and I can't help but picture this in my mind. And I know it's a dangerous thing to try to look behind, beyond the curtain or to try to imagine things in eternity past. And I know that these were things that happened outside of time. But in my little eight-year-old boy mind, I picture this book laid out upon the table. And I see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit rejoicing as they write names there in the book. Is my plan to go after this one and 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 this one? It wasn't a thing that God made up on the fly. This wasn't a thing that God saw our sin and thought, I better come up with a plan. I probably should have had a better plan before I created the world. It's this plan from eternity past. Galatians 4 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those who are under the law. When the fullness of time had come. When time upon time upon time. The fullness of all, the, of all times. As you sum up all of time. What does it come to? It comes to this. The coming of the son. But that everything that led up to that point. Was God's meticulous execution. His administration of this plan. I believe that's why the apostle Paul then says. That this is God who created all things. I wondered to myself as I read this, you know, you just read, this is what you do. You just read a passage over and over and over again. And you ask God to cause things to jump out at you and you ask questions of it. And the question that I had, what does God creating all things have to do with the rest of what Paul's saying here? We're talking about the redemption of man. We're talking about this mystery and the inclusion of the Gentiles. We're talking about something with regards to God's wisdom. But why all of a sudden does he insert this reminder that God created all things? And I think that it takes us right back to the main point of this passage. That God had a purpose and a plan and a wisdom executed in his creation. That God wasn't a cosmic watchmaker. That he didn't create some type of gigantic ant farm. We weren't just some curiosity or some experiment. He didn't say, I'm going to create and see how this thing works out. And you know what? I'm God, so I can fix it along the way. No, he had a specific purpose and a, and a plan in creation. A plan not just in all the things that were made, but in every moment. Time upon time upon time and age upon age upon age. What do I say to you over and over again? There are no meaningless moments. Before the foundation of the world, God had a purpose and a plan for the world. This again is one of those little, little pointers, I think. A little, little hint. When our sons and daughters ask us these questions or when our own mind, when our own heart goes to these kinds of questions, it's helpful to come back to this and remember God created with a purpose and he created with a plan. And even if I can't fully understand that plan, even if I can't reconcile that plan and the tension that that plan creates in my own heart, I can trust my father. I just want to know you got a plan here. I just want to know that there's some purpose in all this and that none of it's meaningless. 
So I think the Apostle Paul is reminding us that God created everything that is. The entirety of heaven and earth. That ultimately he created it. We know the grand purpose for the display of his glory. That everything that is, both in heaven and on earth, it was created as a stage for the manifestation, for the showing forth of his glory. That that's his ultimate purpose. That he might be more fully known. That all of his praiseworthy attributes might be seen and rejoiced in. That we as his people, those whom he has given eyes to see and ears to hear, those who've had the eyes of their heart enlightened, we can see his glory in these things that he's created. In the way that he's administering his plan. In the way that he's working in all these successive moments throughout time. That in every single one of these, we see in this a glorious picture of God. A picture of his infinite attributes. And I think this sometimes gets missed on it, gets lost in our thinking. We've got this idea that God created and man fell and he saved us. And listen, that, that could drive our worship for a billion years. What the Apostle Paul is saying here, though, is, but I want you to know the plan. I want you to see the administration because there's glory in that. There's something that drives your praise and your awe and your wonder and your thanksgiving in that. And I think we've got a, a very faint picture of that in the arts, don't we? How do we love to celebrate wonderful musicians or skilled poets or, or, or top-level playwrights? Whenever they, whenever they put together this magnificent story, they, they show us a picture of something that was first in their mind. It first resided in their own mind and then they reveal it to us either on the stage or, or through the air in music or in the retelling of this, of this story. How much more so should we rejoice in the God of the universe who doesn't write with pen and paper, who doesn't write with musical instruments, who doesn't use actors in, in a manufactured stage, but instead the God of the universe who had a glorious plan in eternity past and he said, I'm going to write this story in all creation. I'm not going to move actors on a stage. I'm going to move hearts and minds. I'm going to move kings and nations. I'm going to set up boundaries and appoint times. I'm going to raise dead men from the grave. There's something to be rejoiced in in seeing the administration of the plan. And seeing the way that God pulled this thing off, if you would allow me to speak crassly. There's beauty in this. That's his purpose. That we might see and behold his glory. This plan that was before time, yet executed in time. Again, to come back to this idea of the fullness of time. You remember in Ephesians 1 verse 8. He was making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Which he set forth in Christ as a plan. There's the same word again. As a plan for what? The fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Again, the sum of all moments. It's not just the stuff, but time itself. It all comes together and it reaches its fullness in what? The administration of God's plan. The pulling off of his purpose. The sending forth of his son to unite all things in him. That's the point of it all. And we begin to understand that if that's it, if the point isn't just I'm born, I sin, I'm redeemed, I go to heaven. If the point is every single moment from here to there, not just in your life, but in the lives of all beings, in the life of all creation. If God really is working all things according to the counsel of his will, then you immediately recognize that there is nothing more practical in all the earth than this. We, we can have this temptation to think that theology is unpractical, unpractical or impractical, impractical. I would much rather show up and then you tell me 10 ways to have your life. Six steps to fix my family. Instead, you're telling me about something that happened in eternity past and that the invisible God is doing right now. Tell me how to deal with my marriage. Tell me how to raise my children and how to manage my finances. But beloved, don't you see, if you know the ultimate purpose and plan beyond all of this, if you're able to see the hand of God in administrating his plan in all of this, don't you see how that drives everything? 
No, it may not tell you what buttons to push to get a Twix bar to pop out. But it explains why things are the way that they are. It tells you how you can find hope in things the way that they are. It tells you how the saints in Ephesus don't lose hope at Paul's imprisonment. Because I recognize that my good father is administering a plan. That's the glory in this. That's the beauty in this. That's why he says, I don't want you to just know the end of the mystery. But I want you to have the eyes of your heart enlightened that you could see the plan. Not just that God saves. I want you to see how God saves. I don't just want you to know that Christ Jesus saves. I want you to see how he saves. What he came to save you from. How he accomplished that salvation. I don't just want you to know that Jesus died on a cross. I want you to know what he actually accomplished on the cross. Because in this, you will see something more of God than you would if you just see the end of the line. You see the gold at the end of the rainbow. So we see what an incredible blessing this is for us, his saints. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 15, there on the night that he was betrayed? He's giving some final instructions to his apostles. And he says this, John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. A servant's just told, go and do. And for so many of us, that's what we think the Christian life is. Just doing a bunch of stuff we don't want to do because God's dad and he said so. But he says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends because I've revealed to you what I'm doing. Not all of it. I'm not here to entertain your every curiosity. I'm not here to remove you from that tension that will remain until your dying day. But see the blessing that is revealed in the plan. And understanding my purposes in all of this. That all the way through, this leads to our happiness and our joy. It drives our worship. Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. He says this is all done in perfect wisdom. Again, I said, these Old Testament saints, how often do they look to heaven and say, God, do you even have a plan here? But I think we're being unfair to the Old Testament saints if we pretend as though we don't have those same questions. God, do you have a plan here? Don't tell me I'm going to heaven when I die. Don't tell me that Jesus is coming back someday. Do you have a plan right now in this moment? Because this is the moment that hurts. This is the moment I'm living in. So do you have a plan right now? He says, not only does he have a plan, but it's a plan in accordance with his perfect wisdom, including the Apostle Paul's imprisonment, including whatever pain we suffer. It's all being carried out under the watchful eye and the, the plan, the purposeful administration and the perfect wisdom of this God. This God who doesn't learn from anyone else. Isaiah 40, verse 14, whom did God consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? Beloved, go read that section there in Isaiah 40 through about 46, I think it is, where you see something of the wisdom and the, and the, the perfect knowledge of God. His sovereignty, not just in his head, but in his carrying out and administering of his plan. His providential control over all things. And see if that doesn't minister to your heart during times of suffering and pain. He says, you have a God who is the source of all wisdom. He needs no one to teach him ways. He doesn't need your counsel and your advice. When you go into your prayer closet, your job is not to inform God of what's happening or not to counsel him on how best to handle it. Trusting he's got a plan and his plan is infinitely wise. Do you see the word he uses there? Manifold. It's a manifold wisdom and that's a wonderful word. I mean, it's various and many different kinds, multifaceted. There, there's different types of um, you, you'll find manifolds in different types of, of things, but the, the one that's most familiar to me is in my house. New plumbing isn't like old plumbing. New plumbing, you got these red and blue pipes that just run all through your house. Have you seen those like plastic pipes? And I remember when my house was being built and I, I went into it before the sheetrock was up and I saw going all through my walls, all this random blue and I knew it was water pipe, but it didn't make a lot of sense to me. 
But then they put this little thing in my, in my pantry, this little manifold. It's a place where it all came together. He says it's a manifold wisdom. It's a perfect wisdom. But to the naked eye, it may look like absolute chaos, like a spider web. You follow one line thinking, okay, I'm going to get to the end of this thing. And then you find 10 more forks coming off of it. Then you follow the next one. You get to the end of it. And there's 10 more off of that further up and further in. There's always more. So you better start to enjoy the discovery. Stop demanding the end. Stop trying to solve the puzzle. Just behold the mystery. It's a manifold wisdom all coming together perfectly. You trust perfectly. All coming together perfectly to one end. This word's also used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. This is the same word that's used of Joseph's coat or his robe. It's multicolored, and I like that a lot. You remember how, how back in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, he talked about how we are God's workmanship. And I told you that word is poemea. It's, it sounds a lot like our word poem, that you're a poem. A story that God is writing. And now he's got this picture of his wisdom as, as multicolored. It was a beautiful robe, a magnificent robe. In a world full of gray robes, this thing is multicolored. You don't even know where to look. Your eyes don't even know where to, where to fixate. But the, when you step back and you behold it all together, you see something glorious and beautiful and well-constructed and worthy of honor. So Paul tells us that this is the manifold wisdom of God. It's not simplistic like ours. We think very linearly, don't we? At least I do. As a man who does not have a whole lot of artistic ability, I think in straight lines. I think systematically. I think of A to B to C to D. And if you throw in a Z, I just quit. This is not the way of God. It's a complex and multifaceted and manifold and multicolored wisdom. We will get to the end of this life. We will step back. We will see it all and see the glory in it. Behold the beauty. And we will thank him for every single one of those colorful threads. Even the ones that hurt when they went in. But he says that this manifold wisdom, his purpose is not just to be wise, not just to do wise things, but to make this wisdom known. God's desire, again, is to display his glory, to make known his wisdom and his power and his might and his mercy and his grace, to make all those things known. He says, my desire is to make these things known, but look at how he makes it known through the church. We spent six weeks, maybe four to six weeks talking about the doctrine of the church. And we're going to, again, as we get to Ephesians chapter four, we're really going to dig in and talk even more about what what is the church. But for this morning, I need to make sure you don't lose your sense of awe at the fact that this multicolored, multifaceted, manifold wisdom of God, he could have made known in any way he saw fit. But he chose to make it known through the church. That Paul's job is to make this known. His great purpose is to make this mystery known to the saints. So that he can then be used to bring those saints into this people called the church. That in them, this multicolor, this multifaceted wisdom might be made known. That's the way God chose to display it and to make it seen and, and known and worshipped. But I, I need to make clear what I don't think he's saying here. I don't hear the Apostle Paul saying that God makes his multi colored his, his manifold wisdom known through the message that the church proclaims. Now, it's absolutely true that the mystery has been entrusted to Paul, that Paul entrusted it to us, and that's the mystery that we share. That, that is a true statement. And it is certainly true that God's wisdom is seen there, but that's not what he's saying here, I don't think. It seems as though he's saying the church itself says something about God. Your existence the fact that we're sitting here in this room, the fact that we're about to come together to the table to enjoy this supper, that the church itself says something about God, the way that he has built it, the way that he has brought us together, the way that he works in and through us, the beauty and complexity of the church, the various uh, uh, races and sexes and free and slave and skill levels and gifting the different shape of these stones that he's bringing together, it stands there as a monument to the wisdom of God. 
So you see the way that this thing works. You begin to see what an incredible blessing it is for the Apostle Paul. He says, look, the mystery has been entrusted to me and I go and preach it. I proclaim the gospel and the unsearchable riches of Christ. By the work of the Holy Spirit, men come to trust in that. They then are joined. Their lives are joined together into this one new man. This one house that God is building. And just by the existence of that house, God's wisdom is known. Think, think back to chapter 1. To prove to you that I'm not, I don't think stretching beyond what the text would allow. Think back to chapter 1 and we talk about all the ways that the triune God was planning and accomplishing and, and applying redemption. And you remember that the clear purpose in all that was to the praise of the glory of his grace. We get to one particular passage though that it says, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. It doesn't say that we do anything. It doesn't say that we accomplish anything. You do plenty. You're his workmanship. Created for good works. But it just says, so that you might be to the praise of his glory. Just be. Just exist. Just abide to the glory of God. It seems as though he's saying the same thing. Those same individuals that God has redeemed, he now brings them into this body so that we might be to the praise of his wisdom. Do you see why I'm making this point? Your mere existence. How often have I told you that a Christian is a miracle? It's a supernatural product of God. How much more so this edifice, this people, this house, this one new man, as he brings all those together to bring one new man in Christ Jesus. You see the wisdom in this. So if we want to see true wisdom, and there's wisdom, the wisdom of God displayed in all kinds of things. Just, just within our own solar system, the way, the fact that we only ever see one side of the moon because it perfectly rotates along with its revolution in such a way you'll only ever see this side. Pink Floyd didn't invent the dark side of the moon. God did. That's one piece of God's wisdom that's seen throughout all creation. But he says, you want to see my manifold wisdom? My multicolored wisdom? The beauty of my wisdom? Look at my church. Look at the bride of my son. Look at this one new man that I'm building together. All that other stuff? It was just a stage for this. It was a stage for me to make my wisdom known like this as I bring together mortal enemies and the Jews and the Gentiles. Again, these living stones that need some, some chipping and some chiseling and some shaping to come together. That it says something about God. I think this is why there, there is something so very contrary to Scripture and so very contrary to the mind of God about men who think that they can be the church without gathering with the church. Just in the name that is used for the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, called out of the world and unto God. In the way in which it is always spoken about an assembled people. Look, we are meant to show the glory of God, to make known the glory of God, to display the glory of God so that the world can look and see the wisdom of God. How does that happen if we're not together doing church stuff? But if we don't come together in this place, again, just by our being together. As the world sees the way in which he brings together all these stones and all these different personalities and the way that his wisdom comes together perfectly to form this thing, we're saying something about God. We really are the centerpiece to God's work in this universe. Think about how precious the family is to God. Husbands called to lead their wives well. Husbands called to lay down their life if necessary, to, to train their children up to fear and to love God, being told that we are no better than a non-believer, we won't care for our families. God loves the family. And yet he's saying it is through this, the very centerpiece of his cosmic plan to make his wisdom known, it's the church. He says, look, families will divide, won't they? I'm not come to bring peace, but sword. I will divide families. You'll watch as this gospel splits families apart. And then what happens in eternity? Do marriages continue in eternity? No. Let me make clear. Your love for your wife doesn't decrease in eternity. It increases along with your love for everyone else. But it's the church the gates of hell will not stand against. It's the church that is the very focal point for God's purpose. 
It's the church that displays his wisdom. Doesn't just display his wisdom here and now in the physical realm. What does he say? The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So we have already covered these rulers and authorities in heavenly places back in the first chapter. And we will come to them again when we get to the when we get to the sixth chapter. But I would encourage you as you think about these heavenly places or some places it's just translated to heavenlies. Just to have in your mind the unseen spiritual realm. If you weren't with us back in, when was it? Uh, May of 2022, May 23rd of 2022, we, we preached an entire sermon on this, on the heavenly places. But just have in your mind, it's, it is the, the place where Christ Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's the place where we are seated with him. This different and unseen realm, and yet a realm that is very much more real than the realm that you can taste and touch and see. A place where unseen things will abide forever. In a place where, much like this earthly realm, there are rulers and there are authorities. There are spiritual beings for a spiritual realm. We think about the, the angels and the archangels, the, the cherubim and the seraphim. We think about those heavenly beings that had to shield their face from the unveiled glory of God. That's the spiritual beings in heavenly places. And we know that some of these rulers and authorities are the holy angels. We know that some of these rulers and authorities are those that we make war against. You look at a book like Job where it says that the, that the sons of God were coming before him and that some of those, at least one of those, was Satan himself. So that in this heavenly realm, this is a place where spiritual beings operate. And I know how out of favor talk like this is today. It sounds medieval and crazy. The idea that there is an unseen world, there is a heavenly place. But we're reminded that all those things were created by the hand of God. And so as he comes here and he says that his purpose is in making this wisdom known, not just here and now, but to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, I guess you've got to decide, although it's not the most critical thing, I guess you've got to decide, is he talking about these heavenly, these, excuse me, these holy angels? Or is he talking about Satan and the fallen demons? I'll leave it up to you to figure out that particular bit. But the most important thing is, He's making this wisdom known to them. And the question might be, well, how, how can this be? Listen, these, these are, these are, if we're talking about the heavenly or the holy angels, we're talking about those that are sinless. We're talking about those that know more of God than we possibly can here on earth. Even if we're not talking about the holy angels and we're talking about the fallen demons, they too know more about God than you ever will on this earth. They were the ones that seeing Christ Jesus in the flesh shrieked and cried out and said, what have you to do with us? We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us before our time? So what is it that they could possibly learn about God by looking at the church? Well, much. Well, much. For one, they don't know anything experientially about the mercy and grace of God. 2 Peter 2.4 says that God did not spare his angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell. There was no mercy. There was no grace. There was no forgiveness. There was no redemption for these fallen angels. They sinned. They fell. They were thrown down to hell. But even of the elect angels, they had no need of salvation. They had no need of mercy or grace like we have received in Christ Jesus. And so they watched and they wondered. I want you to imagine this, right? They, they're watching as their father creates. And he creates man and then man falls. And they hear the voice of their trustworthy father saying, I'm going to redeem man. And they certainly, they're not omniscient. And, and, and they know how incompatible fallen man with an infinitely holy God is. They know how unthinkable it is that God would count righteous fallen men and allow them into his presence. So they had to be thinking, how? How can God be both just and the justifier of a sinner? And then Christ Jesus came and they had to have been thinking to themselves, where is our king and our master gone? Again, I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying this to some degree, but they're not omniscient. They've not seen the full execution of the plan. And so Christ Jesus comes. He lays down his life. He rises again three days later. Is it any wonder then that Peter also says in his first chapter, that this is the thing into which, this is the salvation of sinners. This is the thing into which angels long to look. 
It, this isn't they longed to look and they couldn't see because they had blinders on. This is they loved to look. They delighted in looking. It's Christ Jesus, their king and master, came to earth to redeem fallen man. It's almost as though I heard one man saying they're leaning over the, the, the he uses the word parapets, but I'm picturing like a, like, a, like a balcony. They're there in the balcony of heaven and they're looking down and they're saying, look at what he's done. Look at what Christ Jesus has done. Look at how he's redeemed those sinners. And at the end of it all, what do they say? Look how wise our father is. Who could have ever come up with a plan like that? Who could have ever used so much evil for so much good? Who could have ever managed and administrated a plan through every moment and every time and every era leading to a place like this? Look how glorious our Father is and look at His wisdom. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And I think what it has to say to us is, is that we, as we consider who we are as a people, as we consider what it is that Christ is doing in building a church, I understand how mundane and ordinary so much of what we do might feel. I understand how difficult so much of what we do might be. I understand what a great cost many of you pay in order to follow Christ Jesus with his bride, the church. But I pray that you see from passages like this how very meaningful all of it is has meaning far beyond yourself and your own life and the life of your family. That just by very means of our existence as the church, we are saying something about God. We are being used of God to display his wisdom, not just here on earth, but even to heavenly beings. So that you won't take lightly what we do this morning as we sing songs of praise, our voices joined with voices in heaven. As we sit here in this place and we read the scriptures and we pray together, recognizing that even the holy angels in heaven are looking and saying, I've never known grace like that. I've never experienced mercy like that. And as we come to the table together, arm in arm, linked up as one man that Christ Jesus is building, as we come to this table in the midst of our own suffering and sin and frailty, as we come and receive his broken body and his spilled blood, they look down and they say, look how wise my father is. I pray you recognize the weight of what we do as angels watch on and wonder. Father, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for your wise and perfect plan. We thank you, Father, for the shadows and the signs and the pictures all throughout the Old Testament leading to this place. But we thank you that you didn't stop there, that you brought us all the way to the substance. And we thank you that through your apostles and prophets, Father, you have revealed this truth to us. So we pray, Father, that you would cause it to drive our worship and our wonder. I pray that we would not take these next moments lightly. But with the full weight of all that cost, all that it cost you, Purchase this table for us, that we would come and feast on Christ. Father, we ask it in his name. Amen.